forward. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Towards Success the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Hello and welcome to Vision Towards Success. My name is Katie Crocker, and on this program we will hear from Sarah Mankara, a passionate advocate and entrepreneur. As a graduate of Wellesley College and Harvard University, Sarah is the founder of Empowerment Through Integration, a nonprofit organization committed to creating a more inclusive community by disrupting the narrative surrounding disability. ETI fulfills this mission by empowering youth with disabilities and providing inclusion training. Through its work, ETI proves that, ETI proves that an inclusive community allows individuals, regardless of disability, to identify their true selves and reach their full potential. Join us as we learn more about Sarah, her personal experience with vision loss, and how her award-winning work has touched audiences worldwide. Joining us now is interviewer Shaheem Sutherland and Sarah Mankara. Good afternoon, Sarah. I was thinking we can start off by introducing yourself for our listeners and a little about who you are and uh, what you do. Definitely. Well, good afternoon, Shaheem. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Sarah Mankara. Um, I'm going to introduce myself in a, in a different way and then I'll go into kind of what I do, but... I am a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a colleague, I'm a neighbor, I am a troublemaker in so many spaces, I love math, I'm an introvert, I love reading, listening to audiobooks, I love traveling, I love coffee, I love to eat chicken, I am a woman, I am Muslim, I am blind, I am a person with a disability and I'm very, very proud of it. That's just a little bit of who I am outside of kind of the norm of how we introduce ourselves from the basic technical aspects of who I am. I am the founder and CEO of Sarah McCare LLC, which is a global consultancy firm that promotes authentic leadership across different sectors and spaces through using this really unique in the dark methodology. I've also founded and ran a nonprofit organization called Empowerment Through Integration, which focuses on the empowerment and inclusion with youth with disabilities. So that's who I am. Were you born blind? I, I, I'm sorry if um, you're not comfortable discussing your vision. No, I was born fully sighted, and then I lost my vision when I was seven years old, birthday to be exact. 
I woke up that morning and, you know, I had lost most of my vision. I actually were in, in our summer house, which looked over these big, beautiful mountains. And that morning when I woke up, I could no longer see those mountains. And I remember calling out to my mom and my mom coming and realizing that her second daughter has also become blind because my sister, two years previously, at age seven, she lost her eyesight. So I lost most of my vision, my eyesight then. I had a little bit usable vision until like later on in life. It was a gradual decrease until college years and beyond. That's when I had no more usable vision, but I do have light perception. Kids adjust, right? And kids take whatever the narrative has brought forward to them, right? And my mom and my family brought forward a certain narrative. You know what? You're, this is the reality. We're going to empower you. You're going to be included. They pushed us to really see the beauty and the value and the potential that we had within us. And because of that, we lived a very much full life. When you have the internal narrative that you are, you belong and you exist and you have something valuable to contribute that really, that empowerment is really what takes you forward. I grew up living with my mother and she, you know, she always empowered me as well as your parents did. Like, don't use this as an excuse. You should embrace it. You're going to go out and do anything you want. I strongly agree with that. I always give a shout out to all the amazing people in our lives, whether it's mothers, family members, teachers who really empowered us. And I always say every single person in their life, you don't have at least that one person in your life that says, I see you, you belong, you exist, and you have value to contribute. That source of empowerment is priceless, and that's what takes you forward. But if you've never experienced that source of empowerment, no matter what resources are thrown at you, if you don't believe in yourself, you're not very going to really move forward. So a huge shout out to every single person in this world that has empowered other people. When you lost your vision, I know during your time in elementary school, heading into middle school and even high school, what um, assistive technologies did you use to help you? At an early age, they taught me how to use JAWS, which is a screening software. Because of that, I was able to really become very independent in many ways um, using my computer. Audiobooks, we used to use like these big audio tape recorders. I used to listen to my textbooks on audio, which was a pain in the butt because you had to really fast forward to find the right section. And that was, I would, I would say, one of the challenges. And it taught me patience. I wish I was taught Braille at an early age. They didn't teach me Braille until high school, which was too late. I, I should have been taught Braille earlier on. Braille really makes a huge difference. But that's kind of the technology that I used. And until now, for me, like it's amazing as, as things develop, like the Apple products with the voiceover, with the phone. It's really awesome how accessible. Screen editor with JAWS, it's continued to being developed, all that kind of stuff. But again, when things are being designed, whether it's websites, apps, etc., products, screen touches, let's make sure it's accessible for, for all. What was your relationship with your classmates being in a world where majority of the population is sighted? I'm just curious. I think my experience, it differed depending on my time, my the stage of my life. So elementary, middle, high school, it was fun in many ways. My classmates, I've known my classmates before I was blind. I knew them when I was becoming blind. I was figuring out what the heck I was I was happening with me as, as I was losing my eyesight. And it was never really anything different. I mean, yes, there was different. Sometimes I would have to sit in front or on the side to have an aide next to me. And I felt like that just separated me from my classmate in some ways. But because I knew my classmates since I was a little kid it, up to high school, it wasn't that big of an issue. College was the first time where I went to a new place. I didn't know anyone. I think that it was a really an amazing opportunity and challenge to learn about how do I integrate myself in a in a space where 
I am blind and people don't know and how do they interact with probably most classmates the first time they interact with someone who's blind, et cetera, et cetera. But it was beautiful. I mean, I formed a lot of friendship. I think it strengthened my ability to embrace my blindness in a positive way. I had a lot of classmates come to me and say, Sarah, we love taking classes with you because that's when the professor needs to be more accessible. And when they're teaching better, when they're more accessible in how they're teaching, that's actually a benefit for, for everyone. So, you know, I had a lot of classmates come in and ask me, tell, tell me that, which was really amazing. So ever since then, I mean, one of my greatest strengths is building friendships, um, whether it's through classmates in college, grad school and beyond and colleagues as well. That's amazing to hear. I can relate to that because I think meeting new people and building connections and making friends, I, I really enjoy doing that. There's definitely a blessing and a beauty to, you know, to to us needing, because in many ways we need to sometimes reach out to someone or a stranger like, hey, uh, can you just let me know where this where this you know store is right or am i in the right direction like walking down the street and you talk to random strangers or yours or even like in whatever setting you're in and sometimes we need to reach out and connect with certain folks and i think there's a blessing and a strength and a beauty to that because then we actually are really good at building relationships with anyone and everyone so yeah so you, you mentioned you attended wesley college correct during your time there what did you study at wesley i studied math and economics during your time at Wesley College, you founded the nonprofit Empowerment Through Integration, correct? Tell us more about that and a little about uh, what that was for. My nonprofit journey started when I was an undergrad. It was kind of by accident. Um, I was planning on doing a PhD in my major instead of um, starting a nonprofit. As you're saying, I mean, I love math and that's my passion in many ways. But then sophomore in college, sophomore year in college, uh, my friend Mesa Murad and I got a grant from the Clinton Foundation to host, run and host an inclusive summer camp in Tripoli, Lebanon. This is where my parents are originally from. And we brought together blind and sighted kids. And it was such a powerful camp for the kids, for the parents, for the family, for the community members, and even for myself. And it just showed the value of inclusion. So then senior in college, my professor is like, why are you applying to these PhD programs? Your eyes sparkle when you talk about that summer. Go pursue that work. That's what you should focus on. And that's why I ended up deciding to turn this work into a nonprofit called Empowerment Integration, ETI. So I remember going home and be like, mom, dad, no more PhD. I am going to run a nonprofit organization. And they're like, what? <laughs> that's, not why, that's not why we empowered you. So anyways, and that's how my journey to starting ETI began. I launched it when I was a senior in college. I ended up then going to Harvard for my master in public policy because I wanted to learn how do you run a nonprofit organization that does true impact? How do you create programs that address systemic impact? And that helped me kind of evolve my mission and my perspective towards disability inclusion. Yeah. And I continued running it for 10 years. Do you sometimes ever go back and um, work with them at all? I'm on the board. So I still support as a board member and Ana Barbosa, who used to be our program director is now the executive director and she's doing an amazing job. So I'm there to support in any way that I can. And yeah, I will always be part of ETI because it's my first baby. <laughs> but I will say if you're able to take risks, take them and you never know what's going to happen. And I think taking that risk of starting ETI has been one of the greatest you know, risks I've ever taken. So another thing that you've sort of done is not only did you found the ETI, you've also done speaking tours, correct? How did you go about getting into that as well? 
to be honest, my parents kind of joke around about this specifically because I'm an introvert. And before college, I was a shy, timid girl kind of thing. I think ATI was a really place of empowerment for me as well, you know, as I was building and growing it. And I found my voice, my voice towards, you know, what inclusion is and value-based inclusion and and speaking about it and advocating and going in different spaces. And I think when you start finding your voice and your passion, and your purpose, that's where you start you start building kind of naturally your speaking abilities, right? And capabilities. And that's where I started becoming a speaker in many ways. And that's where then I started becoming invited to speak in different spaces and whether becoming a speaker for the State Department or speak speaking at different UN events or local university, whatever it is. And I think it just comes from my passion and purpose. I don't write my speeches. I don't like to memorize speeches. That's not how I function. I think I have certain bullet points and uh, points I want to make and I just let my passion take over. That sounds extremely difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say it's more difficult if you want to write a speech and memorize it. I think that's more difficult, but <laughs> which I had to do once for the TEDx talk, but that's, I don't know. That was interesting. Have you done speeches outside of our country at all? Like maybe Lebanon? All over the world. I, so I, I've done, I'm, I'm a speaker for the State Department, so they send me on different speaking tours. So I've done speaking in like Kyrgyzstan and Rwanda and Vienna and of course through my work, Lebanon and um, across the Middle East and in Europe and, and Colombia and Latin America and Malaysia and you know, so I've done all over. It's been a beautiful journey. I'm, I've, I've been to I think around 33, 35 countries so far and I want to continue kind of seeing more of the world and connecting with more communities and yeah but of course COVID has been a um you know everything the past year and a half has been virtual so I've done speaking tours virtually which you know <laughs> it's not the same but but yeah definitely so during the speaking tours and any other things you may have done have you picked up any other assistive technologies to help you complete those things I think for me certain apps that I use a lot that has made my life easier. So one app is WhatsApp and it's just like, it's just using voice messages on WhatsApp and being able to easily communicate with my team. My team is virtual. So we have team members across the globe. So for me, like that allows us to be almost in the same room and it's very accessible. Uh, TripIt, which is another app when I travel. So there's just different th apps I would say that has just facilitated my life a bit better. Yeah. Having traveled to many different countries, have you seen any assistive technologies that you think should be adopted over here? I mean, to be honest, maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm so bad at remembering. I know like the U.S. has a lot of these different conventions, which is the National Federation of the Blind, and they have their conventions, and they actually have an assistive technology um, exhibit which shows you the latest and the best technology ever so those are places where you go and you learn there's a friend of mine paul Peravano, who um is a director of government relations at mit and he's blind he's the one that i learn a lot from so from his kind of the latest um earpieces the latest braille reader the latest uh, all these different things uh, i know some people use like ira but to be honest, it's a lot of those conventions and those exhibits was where I've seen kind of the latest technology. Would to describe IRA for um, those of us who may not know what that is? 
you use almost like that helps you um there's uh describes there's there's a number of minutes that you have access to depending on what your what subscription you have and it you have a person almost speaking with you telling you what's in front of you and describing things in front of you and um, are your eyes in, in many ways there's another app which is this one is free and a lot of people have used it and a dear friend will butler he's actually the head of um communications and in, in this company it's called be my eyes and that's one that they are across the globe and if you need someone like you just call them if you need any kind of someone's eyes you call them you'll sh you'll point the app the camera towards the thing and they'll help you for a few minutes and stuff like that so be my eyes is something that's really accessible you did touch on this earlier about having meetings on zoom and doing speaking tours and stuff like that but how has COVID-19 affected your work life or personal life or both? You can answer either or. I think there's been positive and negative. Uh, um, the, the, the positive, I mean, uh, so I launched my consultancy company right when COVID was on its, on, uh, at its highest many ways. And people were like, are you crazy? And our my consultancy company was revolving around the in the dark workshops that we do, whether it's in the inclusion in the dark or design thinking innovation in the dark, just different workshops, which have been done in the past in person. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to launch this and we're going to do them virtually, which for many people were very skeptical. And I was also very kind of skeptical to see if this is going to work out. But it was amazing because it pushed us to really figure out a way to do the our, our work virtually and to offer them virtually in many ways then that allowed us to scale. So like in one day I can do it in the dark workshop in the morning for an organization in Rwanda and in the afternoon an organization in DC, right? Uh, whereas in the past, if I kept them just virtual in person, I wouldn't have been able to do two sessions across the globe in one day. So I think there's that, it, it pushed us to really think outside of the box and there's that been that blessing. Of course, COVID has hit our family, like all families, in 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 a, in a difficult way. Of some people that passed away, and some people that got sick, some people that got really sick, and that kind of stuff. But it's been a blessing to be with the family, and a privilege to be and to to bond with the family the past year and a half. It's definitely been rough, but as you said, there are definitely upsides if forced companies and other platforms to become more accessible you know zoom has become a major thing friends families are able to you know come together now without being at risk of you know catching covid exactly one thing that my family was a bit happy with, so before covid i was literally living outside of a suitcase i was almost in a different country or a different city every week um covid hit i haven't traveled for a year and a half but since May, but then May I started traveling. Anyways, I think being home and not traveling for a little bit has been nice just to kind of re-energize. But now I'm itching back to travel, which I have traveled the past few months. So you mentioned the workshops that workshops that you um hosted, right? What, what were they called again? In the dark workshop. So it's part of my consultancy firm that focuses on authentic leadership. So the sort of workshops revolve around this whole concept of when you remove the lens of sight, you'll have greater vision. So we do everything through the constraint of not seeing. And when you're not able to see, you're not able to make a lot of labels, which means you're not able to make a lot of assumptions. And you remove those, those aspects, you're forced then to get to know that person for who they are. 
and you start building authentic connection and communication and have a greater vision of who that person is. And also you're able to bring more of your true self forward because there's less assumptions and less judgment. And there's a power behind that. And we've used that kind of concept to really facilitate conversations around inclusion, conversations around design and innovation, conversations around leadership. So we bring these workshops all over the world to companies like Microsoft and Harvard and, and embassies and, you know, all kinds. And it's a way to really help companies and spaces to build a space of authenticity, value, and inclusion. Any or thought of doing workshops for uh, in informing or maybe teaching others about blind life? So in terms of like blind specific, that's um, the within the company, that's not our focus, right? For me, our focus is how do you build a space where everyone can bring their true self forward, which means how can a person with a disability or how can a person of color, whatever it is, bring their full true self forward and in doing so, more values brought forward and better policies, right? So that's our focus. And I think to your point, yes, I think having come uh, just the public learn more about, about blind life is really important. And I would definitely recommend like organizations like Dialogue in the Dark or even ETI. ETI really focuses on that. So different organizations are already doing that work. It's so important to learn how do blind people live their life independently and how do we benefit from the value that blind people bring forward to society? I really think it truly is incredible how you teach them how to embrace themselves, like you said, bring their true self forward, you know, whether they'd be black, white, Asian, you know, or have any disabilities, like, you know, you should embrace that. And I really think that that's a beautiful thing. Have you ever received any awards for your hard work and dedication? I'll mention a few, but, you know, and to be honest, all these accolades and awards, I would say they go out to the amazing team that's helped me do the work that we're doing. So I was awarded the Forbes 30 under 30, which was a really great honor. I was awarded like the Harvard Alumni Emerging Leader Award and and there's many others, but like, you know, I would say like these awards and accolades just speaks to the amazing team that I've had that really believe in the work and helped me do the work that we're doing. I do have one final question here before we circle back and bring it to the group to ask you any burning questions that they have in their heads here. Um, what advice or tips and tricks do you have for our listeners who may be disabled or visually impaired? There's two advice I would say. One is don't see your value through how society sees you. See your value and your strength and your embrace your identities through your own lens. Look within and make sure you're embracing all aspects and all parts of yourself in a positive way. Understand how society's perception might be impacting you in a negative way and try to remove that and try to really understand that. So be curious and compassionate with yourself and ask yourself always, am I embracing all of who I am? Do I see my true value? Am I being impacted by society in a negative way? Do I truly believe that I have true impact to bring forward to this world? So that's one, one thing to always ask yourself questions. The second thing is, truly believe you have the power within to empower others. We all do. We all have the power within to empower others. So how do we make sure that in any space that we're in, 
we're empowering others. We're allowing others to bring their authentic self forward. We're allowing others for their voice to be brought forward. We're allowing others to really embrace all of who they are. So see the power in that we have the power to empower others. So those are my two points of advice. That's great advice. Thank you once again for coming on and taking time out of your day to meet with us and answer all my questions. Of course. Thank you, Shaheem. You're listening to Vision Towards Success. I'm Katie Crocker, and our guest today is entrepreneur and advocate Sarah Mankara. After her interview with Shaheem, team member Josh Pearson spoke with her more specifically about the impact of harnessing one's full potential and how to thrive as a person with a disability. Hi, Sarah. This is Josh. Um, hi, I, Josh. Hi. I uh, want to thank you for taking the time to share your story. I'm curious, you've mentioned the word ableism mm -hmm. fairly early on in the conversation. And in particular, I'm really struck by the way that you introduced yourself um, mm -hmm. in terms of really covering that intersection of identities. Diversity is very much something, especially in the employment sector now, it is thrown around uh, diversity and inclusion statements, yep. and it, it seems like it, you know, it it can either be done just as lip service or to check a box. When you are engaging with all of these different organizations and spreading your message of inclusion, what are your measurables in terms of success metrics? How do you know that your work is having an impact and your not just there to check off that diversity box? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, it, and to be real, it depends on the partner and the client, right? Some clients are just looking for a check, you know, checking off the box and say, great, we have a, it's October, October Disability Awareness Month, and let's bring in a speaker or a workshop, right? And they're just looking at a check off the box and, and we always say that clients that really want long-term engagements, because we do have long-term engagement where we work with the client long-term to really help them first understand what are the narratives in their company and how do you, how do, how do we understand how are those narratives preventing from true inclusion and how do people really share more of their true perspective and how do we do journey mapping and how do we then really build policies and procedures around that, right? It's a long-term engagement. It's not a switch of a button. If inclusion was that easy, it would have been done, right? One workshop is not going to solve it because let's be real, all of us are part of creating those narratives, all of us, you know, um, every single one of us. And if we don't start intentionally looking both within, you know, how am I contributing to those narratives? And if we don't also start creating that space to share more of our true perspective and our thoughts around that, we're never going to achieve. So one workshop is not going to, it's never going to solve. And we always say that to our clients, great, we'll come in and do. Uh, and people leave those workshops and they're like, great, amazing, I've learned. But it's constant work. It's, it's a journey. So I think to your point, um, impact, um, there could be short-term impact that can be achieved in one workshop, which we do measure, but long-term impact can only be sustained when there's, you know, a sustainable kind of efforts that's been developed from these workshops. What are the barriers that you're seeing? You've traveled a lot of the world. You've gotten a sense of how different countries approach disability and, and other, other identities. Has that given you a better sense of, 
of how to tackle the work from a societal perspective? Yeah, definitely. The greatest barrier until now, and this is not just disability inclusion, it's actually across all types of inclusion work, is that we approach inclusion from a technical lens, right? People think, okay, let's just make sure we have, let's give white canes to blind kids and there we go. They're going to learn how to be independent, right? But what we don't understand is that ableism comes from this core aspect of society doesn't see the value of people with disability and what they have to bring forward. You know, the narrative right now is that in many spaces, charity narrative, and a lot of space at best, the human rights narrative, it's the right thing to educate, the right thing to employ people with disabilities. But we haven't come to a point where society says, I want to include people with disabilities because when I don't, I lose out on that value. And once society comes to that point, then everyone in society is going to start building from the get-go an inclusive space, an inclusive system, right? An example, websites from the get-go will be developed inclusively, right, and fully accessible, right? But we haven't come to that point where society says, there's a huge community that we're not tapping into and they have value to bring forward and we're losing out that value. So our approach has changed, shifted from kind of doing it from a very technical, this is the right thing to do, to actually how do we bring value forward. And it's not just society, it's actually then people with disabilities as well believing in their value and their contribution. Because to be honest, if you're always hearing from the world, you're a burden, you're asking too much, oh my God, you're, you know, you're an add-on, you start believing that. And there are points in my life where I, I do sometimes, it does get to me. And sometimes I do feel, <laughs> feel like I'm a, I'm a burden, right? So it's both tackling the narrative on both sides and bringing that value-based aspect forward. When it gets too heavy for you, what methods of, of self-care help you deal with that? Hmm, that's a good question. Being out in nature, um, alone time, spiritual things. I, 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 I pray five times a day. Family, talking to friends one-on-one and just opening up. Just all those different things. Also reading, to be honest. I, audiobooks, like reading reading books takes me to another world. And and all of those things help me. And I think for me, in some ways, like it's really helpful to hear, whether from a family member like my mom or a friend, say, it's okay. If it's okay if it's too much. Take a break. You know, it's okay if you don't, you know, if you fail. And I and I've failed many times. Yeah. And that's I think that's such a radical message especially in the disability community because that flies in the face of everything that we're taught in our mm-hmm. rehab centers and you know all of that stuff is we mm-hmm. we're pushed to be successful and always on so that idea of embracing the times where it doesn't work and learning from them I think is just as important you also have to choose your battles in some ways like when I was in grad schools there were times where things were some classes were inaccessible or I had to always find ways to make things accessible and it's exhausting so you feel like it's almost like a full-time job on top on top of being a, a student and I've had to choose which battles to fight because ultimately I told myself I want to enjoy my time here I want to enjoy my time in school. I want to benefit like everyone else. It's not fair sometimes I have to always fight, fight, fight for my rights and fight for my, you know. And I think being very, taking always a high-level view of things and seeing what's worth putting your energy into. I, I very much agree with that. And I think that's, you know, a really important strategy, whether it's disability or, yeah. you know, other kinds of isms that, that yes. we, we are dealing with. Yeah. When thinking about the idea of narrative and empowerment through connecting to this kind of shared disability experience and culture. I'm curious, in your own life, 
how has being a part of various types of communities played into yeah. your identity? Yeah, I think that um, there's a few th there's a few different things. One is in everything and anything I do, I try to apply this whole concept of curiosity through a lens of compassion, right? How do you really you'll never address any ism or any any kind of gap of communication if you don't initiate a dialogue. And then many times that dialogue might start off from a very space, with, with, from a point of assumption, right? And we always get that. Like as a person with a disability, I walk down the street, right, and someone comes up to me like, um, oh my God, you must be living such a tough life. And when I was younger, I used to get really frustrated and I would, I would turn back and I'd be like, excuse you? Like, you know, <laughs> what are you saying? Kind of thing. You know, and I, I used to be very, you know, feisty in my response. We will never come to a point of, you know, addressing these isms if we don't create that bridge and that bridge of dialogue and really communicate on both, both sides, right? Curiosity through a lens of compassion. How do I get to know you and where you're coming from, but through a lens of compassion, not assumption? And how do I also be curious and compassionate with myself and understand why did this person trigger me? Where is this coming from? How am I getting, you know, why am I getting upset with this? Why is this impact, you know, and I think the more we understand ourselves and our reactions and what things are impacting us, the more that we're going to move towards this journey, you know, of, of really embracing ourselves. I think always looking within, understanding, and always trying to communicate outwardly, but through a lens of compassion. And that's been my approach with a lot of my work, whether disability work or the work in the Muslim community or the work in, in um, gender work, whatever it is, right? Because let's, let's be real, I walk into a space, I'm a blind hijabi Muslim woman, I'm dealing with a lot of isms at, at, at face value, right? Mm. You know, and I've had to, and one time my professor said something very valuable, if you enter a space and you truly believe you belong there and you believe that you have value to bring forward, that the people in front of you, even if they come with the first assumption, oh, my God, she is this or she's that or she's that, they're going to change their perception over time because they're going to see what you are, what narrative you are bringing forward. So, but I'm only able to do that when I've really done the work internally and I truly believe that I have value to bring forward. And I'm not going to let those ism impact who I am. Does that make sense, that cycle? So, 100%, yes. Yeah. yeah so. so let's let's turn to that internal work for a second. Mm -hmm. um, let's say that somebody is new and we'll, we'll choose disability as, as the identity yeah. just because yeah. that's where, where we are in, in yeah. the community. Um, somebody is new to disability, either acquiring it as their own identity or they're yeah. new to thinking about it as a positive experience um, where does that internal work begin how would yeah. how do you suggest somebody who's either looking to figure out what their voice is how yeah. to add value to the conversation and take pride in who they are or yeah. let you know f to flip the coin the able-bodied non-disabled individual who is starting to shift their perspective on what yeah. it means to adopt disability as an identity? Yeah, that's a good question. I would start off with actually, okay, let's say that disability identity, you've either acquired it new or it's, a, it's you're trying to look at it from positive. I would first list all the narratives around that identity 
that they are that when they think of that that identity, what's the narratives that they hear they they hear in their mind? What are what do they think of that disability identity? And they should list all of those. Um, what and and then compare that also. What is the society sees that narrative, and see how much what how they're seeing their disability versus how society sees them, and how much are they correlated? I'll tell you one example. I always do this in a lot of spaces. I say, okay, a person with a disability is walking down the street. What is society thinking of them? And I I, sh I put that question out to the audience. And what I hear, which is which is the truth, right? Oh, pity, poor you, tough life. You know, they can't. Probably they need help. All oh, these different things, right? So that's the narrative society sees disability still. That's the re that's the reality. Then compare it to is that how you're seeing disability? Your own disability identity and listing those narratives out. Then the third is, let's start pushing towards, well, how can I flip that and see my disability in a positive way? What are some positive things that have come from my disability identity? And really working on listing those out. I always say, for me, my blindness has been one of my greatest blessings. Um, in many ways. It's given, me a it's given me a purpose, it's given me so much, but I'll give you one example why it's been a blessing. It's because I walk down the street, I'm not able to see a lot of people's, you know, how people see me with my hijab as a Muslim woman, right? I don't see any of those. And because of that, I'm easily able to, you know, take out, you know, if I need to make my prayer, go to the corner in the airport and start praying. Whereas my fellow hijabi Muslim friend doesn't feel comfortable because she sees people staring at us. And she says, no, 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 I'm not comfortable. I'm like, well, I can't see them. There we go. I'm going to start praying. And she says, this is one of your blessings and your strength when you're blind because you can't see. And you do your own thing. You're your true self. You do whatever, you know. So there, there is that freedom of being blind, you know, when you're being blind. And that's one of my blessings. So I think having people list what are some of your, the strengths towards their disability identity. When you first started to, to take this gamble and started yeah. a nonprofit and started to realize that people were responding to your message and that you were putting your voice out there. Um, what was that like? And when, when thinking about specifically people who feel like they have a message or mm -hmm. um, something they want to be able to give to the world, but they're not exactly sure where to start with that, what, what advice would you give? It's been a journey, to be honest, of, 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 uh, of putting my voice out there in the beginning it was a lot of like the way I was able to build this this movement was through a lot of friends and family that believed in the work right and that's why usually if you think about a lot of the organizations they all start off with family friends because they'll they'll believe in you and they believe in you know even a lot of times like oh my god what are you doing <laughs> like you know but that gave me then the the platform and the resources and the support to do some of the work. In the first few years, I ran ETI fully based on volunteers, fully. Um, but it's all about, there's just, there's a really important um, public narrative model by Marshall Gans that says, use the self-us-now model, which is you put out your mission and your, your purpose, right? You talk about how it's connected to you. Then you try to connect it with the people that you're trying to work with and mobilize. And then you just put a specific now action plan. You want to make sure whenever you want to make a difference in this world, you're never going to do it alone. 
it's going to be a it's going to be mobilizing um people and communities to make that difference and you need to learn how to connect your story to them and how they can connect to it on a personal level and how you can do that now and i think that's over now over over a period of time you start then mobilizing different communities different people into the change and over time then you get resources and funding and you hire people as well and then you um and then you start slowly growing 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 and you start building credibility and start building um a history of impact and you start building all these different things that leads you to different spaces and more spaces and more 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 credibility right it's a positive cycle but you need to start off with you know i started off with no resources my sort my resources were my was my human capital the friends, the family that believed in the work. What level of importance do you think, given that there are various people, um, both consultants like yourself and and larger governmental bodies or um, various agencies, all trying to tackle this kind of inclusion work, do you think partnerships between those different entities could help the work move quicker? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I will say more hands together, the better, right? I think, you know, it goes back to what we said earlier, right? Even on the organization level, like you can't do the work alone. You need to have a community. I was to say on a on a, another level, right, systemic level, you need the private, public um, sector and the nonprofit sector all coming together to, 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 to address inclusion and make that change. Um, it's, it shouldn't, you know, doing it alone will never make a difference. And let's say, let's say a company's doing it well, spread that knowledge to other companies, right? Spread that work and how they're doing to other companies. So the, the, the more partnerships, the better. I think the more that we, people with disabilities, enter leadership roles and different leadership roles and try to change the narrative, people are going to start accept, accepting that, right? I think that it's the recognizing the narrative that we're putting out and really trying to be in spaces of impact. And you don't need to just actually be in a leadership role, to be honest. You can make that impact anywhere and everywhere. I will say in any space that you're in, think about what narrative you're contributing to. And how can you start making sure you're putting forward a value narrative? I also say one thing which is kind of controversial. Sometimes people ask me like, oh, if you ever can get back your eyesight, would you want to? And I say, um, right now I say, no. It's just become such a big part of who I am. Am I being extreme? I don't know. And I say, well, it's almost like me telling you you're no longer... You know, you no longer have this identity, whatever the identity is, right? It's it's just a part of who I am, and it's giving me purpose. It's it's I love how I you know I I live my life and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if it's an extreme thought, but that's just how I feel right now. It just became it's a big part of my identity. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Towards Success. We would like to thank Sarah Mankara for joining us on the program. If you'd like to learn more about Sarah, visit her website, www.saramankara.com. That's www.saramankara.com. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Toward Success. This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. 
Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts.